Thank you for joining us for another episode of the Key Life Fellowship Men's Bible Study. In this series, Pastor Kirk Hall will be teaching through the book of the Bible known as the Revelation. At this time, open your Bible as the Holy Spirit unveils God's truth to your heart. Go ahead and take your Bibles, open up to Revelation chapter 8. And we will be looking at chapter 8. We're going to cover the first five verses tonight. I know we have been traveling through some of these chapters rather quickly. We're going to slow this down a little bit intentionally because I want you to see in these first five verses there is a lot here to look at. We are going to see the, the opening of the seventh seal tonight. And this seal, when it's open, uh, we're going to see that a fulfillment of a promise that, that we saw way back in the fifth seal. Uh, if you would turn back to Revelation chapter 6, Revelation 6 and 9, <clears throat> we remember this, I'm sure, or I hope you do. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice. Remember this question, how long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? And then each of them was given a white robe and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. So uh, this promise that was made back in chapter 6 that he is going to avenge their blood and he told them, just wait until the full number of the martyrs are brought in. We know when we looked in chapter 7 and verses 13 through 17, if you'll remember that with me, uh, we see that during the great tribulation there is another group of martyrs who we see there in verses Seven, uh, 13 through 17 and 7 when we were there. And those group of martyrs were the remaining martyrs during the Great Tribulation. So we're going to see in this passage um, that there will be vengeance as God has promised for those who will be martyred during this time of tribulation, which is amazing to me. Um, that he would do that. Their prayers are going to be heard and they're going to be honored. Uh, they have been praying. Uh, we know as we saw them in, in 6 and in 7, uh, they, they were martyred for their faith, but they were praying that the wickedness that took their life would be judged. And God is going to do that tonight in this passage. He's going to deploy His special angel. He's going to deploy this angel to execute His wrath in regard to those He loves. What a comforting thing to know that every wicked thing that has been done to God's people throughout the ages, every wicked thing that has been done toward His name, He will avenge those things that have been done, have been said, the persecution that the church has felt through the ages, even the martyrs here specifically that we're going to see tonight in Revelation chapter 8. So let's look at that in verse 1 as we see the opening of the seventh seal. Remember, this falls on the hills of God showing mercy in the midst of His wrath. Uh, we know that He stopped. He sealed 144,000 evangelists from Israel, 12,000 from the 12 tribes to go do the work of the gospel on the earth during the tribulation. 
And here he's going to be faithful again to what he has promised. I will, when the full number is brought in of your brothers who are going to die for their faith, I will avenge their death. So he says here in verse 1, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth, and there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes, of lightning and an earthquake. I want us to pay attention to this, and there is a lot of Old Testament references in here. We see altars. We see, realistically, the altar of incense. We also see the brazen altar where the burnt offering would have been made, and they would have taken the coals of that burnt offering and put it on that altar of incense. They would have offered incense up to to the Lord um, in the tabernacle, and then we know in the temple. We know those things, those earthly things, the the elements of the tabernacle and and that Levitical worship that we see there, we know this, that those were just pictures and types of the things that are in heaven. What John is going to see, John is going to see and reveal to us the reality of some of those things tonight. We're going to see those. But what we see first when we read this text is we see silence in heaven. That's what I want you to see first, the silence in heaven. It said, when he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. So there's silence for about half an hour. And what this is going to do, when you see something like this, a a large shift in all of what is going on in this book, pay attention to that. There's a shift here. Heaven has not been quiet. We know this. This is a shift, and it's a very important shift. It is a distinct change from what we have been seeing. We are moving from all sorts of noise to complete silence for half an hour. So for 30 minutes, nothing is spoken in heaven, nothing is said in heaven, nothing is sung in heaven, and we know this. This is following a period of loud noises. Remember, we heard peals of thunder from the throne. Uh, At our first glimpse of the throne room, there were peals of thunder and lightning. We've seen shouts of praise constantly. We've seen loud singing. We've heard thundering voices that sounded like trumpets. And then all of a sudden, in an instant, the seventh seal is open, and it gets quiet. Dead quiet. Silence in heaven for half an hour. That's showing us that it's a short period of time, but it probably seemed like an eternity to John, who was there receiving all of this. And it had been noisy the whole time, hearing the roar of the heavenly beings. And now, all of a sudden, silence. No more singing. No more saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Nothing. For half an hour. It was after that period of loud noises. Pay attention. This is a clear transition here. Something is about to happen. You're going to see what that something is. The silence is after a period of loud noises, but it's also anticipating the magnitude of this final seal judgment. This seventh seal, this final seal judgment, because we've learned that 
Seven is what? God's number of perfection or completion. So God's seventh seal is going to be opened. And when it is, all of heaven is going to anticipate the magnitude of this final seal judgment. And they are literally going to be silenced as they stand in awe. It is signifying their awe. That's what the silence is. They are in awe of the glory of God. They have been watching seal one through seal six, watching what God has been doing, the wrath that he has been pouring out upon the sinful earth. And then here we have the seventh seal, which we're going to see that contains the seven trumpet judgments and the seven bowl judgments that are to come. But all of heaven silenced in awe of the glory of God, signifying their awe at who He is. Not only that, signifying their amazement. They are seeing the almighty power of God being poured out on the earth. They had heard about His almighty power. They had read the Scriptures. And now they are seeing His almighty power for the first time in the full fury of His wrath about to be poured out on the earth. And so they are amazed and in awe. It also signifies, thirdly, expectation. They are silenced by the expectation of the judgment of God. We ought to be silenced in awe, in amazement. And what we've read so far in, in the Revelation, what we've read in Scripture, the things that we have seen as far as the attributes of God go. But here they are seeing the last seal of God's judgment opened up. And here they are. And they have no words to say. If you've walked with God long enough, you know this. There are those moments where we get a glimpse of that kind of glory. And only a glimpse in this lifetime, I assure you. But it brings us to silence. I think about Isaiah when he had the same vision of heaven. And he was silenced. I think about every Old Testament reference that we've looked at in this study thus far. No need to go back and look at all of them again. Ezekiel. We know John in the Revelation, he fell as a dead man, silenced before the glory of God. And here we see all of heaven, complete silence. Nothing. Nothing but awe and amazement and expectation and anticipation of what God is going to do next. So this signifies awe and amazement and expectation, but it also signifies the appropriate response. Shouldn't this be the appropriate response when you're in the presence of the full glory of God? When Christ opens that seventh seal, His judgment is about to be made perfect upon the earth, complete. Shouldn't it cause us, when we see that type of glory and power, to just shut up and close our mouths? Because at that point in time, do we really have anything that we could say? Is there anything worth saying? And so, in the midst of all this judgment, for a half an hour, all of, science, all of heaven 
is in silence, saying nothing, giving the appropriate response to the judgment of God. How horrific it will be. How awful it will be. Many times we forget when we talk about being stricken with awe, it is stricken with the realization of the awfulness of God. To see that this is awful what is going to happen upon the earth. Now, we use that as a bad term, right? Oh, it's awful, and it will be. But it ought to bring us to a place of pure amazement and adoration and worship to see that the full fury of a holy and perfect God is going to be poured out on the wickedness of this world. That's what happens when this first seal is open. It's consistent with what we see in Scripture. In fact, Zephaniah, I know that's not one you turn to very often. But Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 7, it says, Be silent before the sovereign Lord. When you realize how sovereign He is, it should move you to a place of silence where you just stop. He says, Be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The day of the Lord is near. In fact, we're seeing the day of the Lord happen here in John's vision that he is receiving that we have called Revelation. And the day of the Lord is happening right here and right now in this very chapter, chapter 8 of Revelation. And before it happens, there is a half hour, 30 minutes of silence and consistency with Zephaniah, which says, be silent before the sovereign Lord, for the day of the Lord is near. The Lord has prepared a sacrifice. He has consecrated those he has invited. Not only does Zephaniah testify to this, the psalmist in Psalm 76, verse 8 says, from heaven you pronounce judgment, and the land feared and was quiet. Stricken with awe, stricken with excitement, stricken with amazement. The appropriate response, God is pouring out his wrath. There's no more to say. When you, O oh God, rose to judge, to save all the afflicted of the land. Zechariah 2, verse 13, it says, Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. The wickedness of man has roused God at this moment in time from his holy dwelling. He is going to pour out his wrath on sin. Please understand that. And all of heaven, when this happens, says nothing. Totally stricken with all. We see Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 20. It says this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. When's the last time that you went into your prayer closet, stricken with awe at the sovereignty of God, having no words to say? Here they are in that position in heaven. All of the angels, all of the saints who have gone before, all of the tribulation martyrs, here they are, all silenced. Psalm 46. You know this out of context. Let's look at it in context. Psalm 46.10, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. This is being fulfilled right here in Revelation 8 as all of heaven is silenced and is exalting Him for who He is. All of earth will as well, I assure you. 
But we see this silence marks a proper response. It marks the proper response here when God reveals His glory and silence precedes His majesty. To be stricken with complete awe by His power and His presence to the point where words cannot be spoken. I say this to you, brother, in Christ. I say this to myself. When's the last time we have been stricken with awe to the point of silence? To where we read about the magnificence of our God and we have nothing else to say but to fall on our face as dead men before Him. All of heaven is silenced by the opening of that seventh seal. And then we see next, as we continue in this text, verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. Again, we see this number seven. It just keeps coming up, doesn't it? We see this number seven, and there are seven angels representing, again, God's complete and perfect judgment. We're going to see these seven angels are going to play a huge role in the seven judgments that are going to follow. They are here, and it says this in verse 2, and I want you to pay attention to this. They are standing in the presence of God. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God. What does that signify? What does that mean? It means they are there waiting. They are there at His beck and call to do His will and to serve Him. Whatever it may be, they are there. They are standing ready before His throne. They are always ready. In the Latin, that's sumus parati or parati sumus. That means always ready or ready to go. Now, these guys are ready. They're ready to execute the will and the judgment of God when he gives that command. What servants of God, what an example, standing, it says, at his throne, waiting for his command that they would be obedient in bringing him glory. So they're standing in the presence of God, and it says this about them, and to them were given seven trumpets. They're standing in the presence of God, but they are securing seven trumpets. These are the seven trumpet judgments that I have been telling you that will be contained in this seventh seal. The significance of the trumpets is very important that we understand this. We can't go back and look at all of the Old Testament scriptures that refer to trumpets, but there are countless references. But it's used in the Old Testament many ways. One of those ways is to summon uh, the congregation. We know that they would summon summons the congregation of Israel when they were to meet. And that trumpet would sound and they would be drawn to the meeting. But it's also to sound an alarm when they went to war. To sound invasion. Or to sound an offensive attack. It was to announce certain and critical events. They would blow the trumpets and then they would announce these events. They would actually blow trumpets when they were inaugurating a new king and a new leader. Many of the festivals that we learn about in the Old Testament, they would begin with trumpets. So it's God's way of making an announcement to proclaim important news, upcoming events. And each one of these trumpets, as we are going to see, is going to open the door for another 
step in God's wrath upon the wickedness of sinful man and the sinful earth. Zephaniah, again, referencing that great book that gets overlooked so many times. But if you want to understand the day of the Lord in the end times, you must include some study of Zephaniah. But he says this, chapter 1, verse 14, The great day of the Lord is near, near and coming quickly. Listen, the cry on the day of the Lord will be bitter. The shouting of the warrior there, the day will be a day of wrath, a day of distress and anguish, a day of trouble and ruin, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. 16 says, a day of trumpet and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the corner towers. Zephaniah describes the day of the Lord, and in his description, he describes the trumpet and the battle cry that will come with these trumpets as these angels specifically and sovereignly execute the perfect and complete judgment of God. That's why there are seven angels. That's why they have seven trumpets. These seven angels are given these trumpets to sound a blast when the next event is going to happen in its prescribed and sovereign order. It has already been determined. Remember, we talked about this when we began to look at the scrolls. There was writing on the front and the back of the scroll. This was a precise, detailed account of the judgment that was to come, written by God Himself. Here Christ opens that seventh seal. We see silence for 30 minutes. And then, as John says, we see these seven angels. These seven angels given trumpets. Those trumpets are going to come into play in the lessons that we will be looking at in the next several weeks as we unfold these trumpet judgments. So we continue in the text and in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Another angel. Remember we have seven, but now there's one who had a golden censer and came and stood at the altar. He had a golden censer and he came and he stood at the altar. We see here a distinct angel from the seven. This is a single angel. Which brings us to the next point tonight, the, the single angel. This angel, distinct from those who had seven trumpets, he was not one of them, he was another. However, he must be recognized here as important. Many scholars have tried to identify this angel as Christ. I think that they err in that uh, because it doesn't make a lot of sense because we have seen Christ already here and He is represented as the Lamb, as we have seen. But many think that this is a representation of Christ because He's seemingly carrying out priestly duties. Um, as I've said, however, I don't believe that, that that's accurate um, because of the identification of Christ that we have already seen. Uh, this is better seen, in my opinion, as a special agent or a special angel of God carrying out the execution of God's judgment. We're going to see that happen. Uh, he's going to carry out the execution of God's judgment and vengeance for the name of God and for the people of God who bear his name. Uh, so this could be, in my opinion, and underlying that in your notes, Kirk's opinion. I'm not being dogmatic by saying this at all. This is consistent with the archangel Michael, uh, who throughout scripture we see is the one who was the defender of God's people. We're going to see that this angel plays that role. Though he's not identified, don't leave here and say, I know that that angel's Michael because Kirk said so. <laughs> no. 
I think that it could possibly be him, in my opinion, based on what we have seen Michael do throughout the Scripture as he defends the people of God and as he serves the Lord. But I want us to pay attention to the details of this single angel, more importantly than who he is or who he might be or who we think he could be. Some of you say it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. It's just interesting to think about. Who could it be? But what does matter is the function that we are going to see this angel operating in. He's holding a golden censer, it says. And this is a pan. We, we know that this pan or the censer uh, was, was a type of bowl, and it was connected to a chain. And the priests would carry hot coals uh, from the brazen altar uh, where they would make burnt sacrifice. The priest would then take that to the altar of incense. Uh, we see that in Leviticus chapter 16. Uh, we, we can read it if you would like. Verse 11, it says, Aaron shall bring the bull for his own sin offering to make atonement for himself and his household, and he is to slaughter the bull for his own sin offering. He is to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before the Lord and two handfuls of finely ground fragrant incense and take them behind the curtain, and he is to put the incense on the fire before the Lord, and the smoke of the incense will conceal the atonement cover above the testimony so that he will not die. This is an offering. When we, when we see incense, understand that, that is the offering of prayer. And so we see in Leviticus 16 a picture of that, the, the priest carrying that censer full of hot coals, mixing those hot coals with incense and burning them uh, before the, in the Holy of Holies before uh, what we know as the Ark of the Covenant. We can go back and we can do a study on that at some time. This is not that time, but we know that that represents the presence of God. The angel, it says, who is holding that golden censer, it says that he was given much incense, much incense to mix with the prayers of the saint. Now, if you don't really pay attention to this, this could become rather confusing. I don't want that to be the case. I want this to be rather clear because there's so much that we can glean from this. Uh, the incense represents prayers. We can come to that conclusion, Old Testament and New Testament. But we see that it's not just the prayers of the saints because he's mixing the other incense with the prayers of the saints, with their incense. Because remember, we saw them holding bowls of incense, which are, as described, prayers of the saints. And now we see this angel who is taking the much incense that he has been giving and he's given, and he's going to mix it with the prayers of the saints. So we have this angel mixing prayers with the prayers of the saints, which causes us to ask this question, or it should, whose prayers is he mixing with the prayers of the saints? Because obviously God wants us to understand the incense as prayers. He has been given, this angel, prayers from someone. Not the prayers of the saints. They are distinctly different, and they are kept in, as we know, the bowl. But here we see he's mixing them together. We have to ask whose prayers. Where do these prayers come from? As I was studying this week, I had one of those moments. If you've studied the Word of God long enough, you have these moments, and then you have these moments where your head just is turned to heaven and your hands are lifted in praise and you begin to thank God for all that He does. As I was looking at this and asking that question, whose prayers could these be? 
my heart was turned to Romans chapter 8. We know that these martyrs have been suffering. We know that they have been praying while they were on this earth. We know that they eventually died for their faith. We know that there has been promise by God that they would be avenged. But can you imagine as they were roaming through this earth during all the tumultuous times that we have already seen unfold in those first six seals, and here they are. Can you imagine that they would even remotely have any words to significantly pray with? Now, I was drawn to Romans chapter 8. When we look at Romans chapter 8, we see this. You guys who studied Romans with us, you probably already know where I'm going. But verse 26, it says this. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. We see here a picture of the Holy Spirit Himself interceding in prayer on behalf of the suffering saints. It wouldn't be any different during the time of tribulation, I assure you of that. The Holy Spirit is the one who intercedes with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Could it be, and I can rightly assume that it could be based on Scripture, that the angel is holding the prayers of the Holy Spirit, mixing them with the prayers of the saints, the prayers of the Holy Spirit, which, which we could not and would not ever be under, able to understand. Groans that can't be comprehended. We see in Romans that the suffering saints were encouraged by the fact that the Spirit was praying on their behalf. Have you ever been in that moment, man, in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering? You didn't even have the words to pray. You were overwhelmed with the peace of the Holy Spirit because you knew that He was interceding for you when you didn't have the words to say, when you didn't know the right thing to come up with. He was there, and I assure you of this, His prayers were in perfect accordance with God's will, just as Romans chapter 8, verse 27 tells us that He intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. He will intercede for those tribulation saints the same way that He has interceded for the saints who have suffered throughout time. I assure you of that. And here we see in heaven this angel taking prayers that we know not where they come from, mixing them with the prayers of the saints. He takes those. It says that He's standing at the altar. Look at verse 3 again. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar and before the throne. He was standing at the altar. We can assume here that this is the altar of incense as typified by the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 30, you can look at it when you have time. Verses 1 through 3 talks about this. Here this angel standing before the golden altar altar of incense and the golden altar there in the holy of holies in the presence of God Ezekiel and Isaiah both testified to this altar in heaven I told you 
all of the things that we see in the tabernacle, all the things that all the elements and the pieces of furniture, they all mean something in regard to the heavenly kingdom. Here John is seeing it in heaven, not on earth. He's seeing it in heaven, not reading it in Exodus, and not reading it in Leviticus. He's seeing it as Ezekiel did in chapter 10 and Isaiah did in Isaiah chapter 6, testifying to the altar that is in heaven where there are incense going up before the throne of God in these incense here in this specific passage. Are those incense that were given to the angel? Which I believe those are the intercessory prayers of the Holy Spirit mixed with the prayers of the saints, becoming perfect when they're mixed with the prayers of the Holy Spirit, who, as Romans says, he always prays in accordance with God's will. I miss the mark, I promise you this, most of the time. Holy Spirit, he never misses. They're mixed together and they become perfect before God. And then we're going to see what happens next. We see the saints' prayers being mixed with these. Let's look at the saints' prayers Three, the next part, they're mixed with the saints' prayers on the golden altar before the throne. It says, the smoke of the incense together with the prayers of the saints went up before God from the angel's hand. What a comforting thing. Because of the prayers, the incense that the angel offered up, because God is faithful to hear the prayers of His children, we can be confident of this. Our prayers we'll go before the Father. These prayers here, we know, this is the tribulation saints, those that will be martyred for their faith. The prayers that they have made in their suffering and in their agony. God has not missed one single one of those prayers. The angel is making sure that those prayers are sent up to the very throne and presence of God. Remember Revelation chapter 6. Remember what they said. They called out in a loud voice. Verse 10, how long, sovereign Lord? You read it at the beginning. Look at it again. How long, sovereign Lord? Holy and true until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Are they praying? You bet they're praying. How long until you avenge our blood? At first, this seems like a very selfish prayer, doesn't it? These are the, bloods, the, these are the blood of the saints. These are God's precious, made holy, righteous children, just as you are if you are in Christ. These things are important to Him. He is not going to let your persecution, your suffering, even your death for the cause of Christ go unanswered for. We see Him doing the same here for the tribulation saints, those martyrs who will die for their faith, who are praying how long? Lord, till you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our, our blood. And each of them was given a white robe, and they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. And can you imagine? They're praying to God. God, when are you going to avenge our blood? A little later. A little later. When the full number of all of those who are going to be killed in like manner as you when the full number of those are brought in, then I'm going to. We see here in chapter 8, he is about to do that. He's about to do that. The angel 
takes those prayers, those incense that he has been given, he's mixing them with the prayers, the incense of the saints. And he takes them into the very presence of God. Delivered personally to the throne of God. Our prayers in Christ, I assure you of this, men, they will never fall short of the throne. You say, well, I don't know how to pray as eloquent as other people. Eloquent prayers get you nowhere. Spirit-led prayer, I assure you of this, gets to the throne. Praying in accordance with the Word of God and the will of God, it's never going to miss the throne. Why? Because the Holy Spirit guarantees that when we don't even have the words to say, He's going to make sure that they get there. Here we see a beautiful picture of an angelic being. I told you, it doesn't really matter who he is at this point. But he is making sure, according to the will of God, that all of the prayers of these tribulation saints make their way to the throne of God. Reminds me of what James says in James chapter 5, verse 16. It says that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. I assure you that these prayers of the tribulation saints were prayers of righteous men. How do I know that? Because God saved them and made them righteous through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. They have offered up these prayers, and these prayers have not gone unheard. Just like yours. Just like mine. We see the single angel, the saints, prayer. And I want you to see in verse 5 tonight, the start of God's retribution. Watch how this all plays out. It says, then, then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. Now, I guarantee you this, this was in accordance with the will of God. After the prayers were offered up, the will of God is relayed to that angel. He does exactly what God desires that he does. And what does he do? He hurls this censer. He hurls it to the earth. There came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. What does this show us? It shows us that God's not going to stand by forever and let his name and the name of his people and his people who wear his name. He is not going to stand by forever and allow his name to be abused. God's vengeance is clearly seen here. Please make no mistake. This is the vengeance of God. I know what many would say in our modern liberal thinking Who does God think he is to take vengeance? I'm going to answer that for you. God. He's God. And what he's doing here, he is executing his holy and righteous vengeance upon wickedness on this earth and upon those who have harmed his children. He is showing us here that he is a good father. What father would not protect his children? He is doing that. God's vengeance clearly seen in this passage. Introducing us to the fiery indignation of God. God commands the angel. Again, I assure you, the angel did nothing without the Lord's command. Fleeing that fire upon the earth. 
introducing his fiery indignation to man's wickedness. This begins a prelude that is going to lead up to the dreadful trumpet judgments of the Lord that are about to follow. He is avenging his children's martyrdom here. Those who were martyred both in chapter 6 and in chapter 7, they can know this, that their faithful God is going to avenge their blood just as they prayed that he would. The full number has come in and he is doing exactly what he promised. Aren't you thankful that God keeps not 99.9% of his promises, he he keeps every single one of his promises. Here he is keeping that promise, avenging his children, avenging their blood, advancing his judgment. He's escalating toward his next holy judgments. I told you this, when the first seal was broken, the judgments were going to follow in secession just as God has already laid them out to go. Here they are, advancing toward the return of Christ. Advancing toward the end of wickedness and sin. This is also announcing his indignation. He's making no apology here. Did you know this? God doesn't have to apologize. In fact, one thing that you will never see in Scripture, never see, is God issuing an apology. He doesn't have to apologize. Everything about him is perfect. His judgments, his indignation, his wrath, his mercy, his love, all of it, perfect. He doesn't have to apologize. He's not going to issue an apology to wickedness. In fact, he's going to judge wickedness. The wicked and the unrepentant sinners are going to get exactly what they deserve. The angel here is beginning that fiery indignation for the will of God. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. This is talking about apostasy. That is unbelief. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. That's what sinful man does. They hear the general call of the gospel. They receive the knowledge of the truth. They don't surrender to it. That's who will be left on this earth at that time. He says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Watch this and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. This is the first instance here in Revelation 8 where the angel takes those incense, those coals from the altar, and he flings them at the earth, representing the fiery indignation of God. That's all that the lost unbeliever has to look forward to for all eternity is the holy and perfect and fiery indignation of God. Many people will say at this point, well, that's not the God I like to believe in. You don't like to believe in the biblical God. You like to believe in fairy tales. You like to believe in teddy bears who hug you and give you what you want. You like to believe in little genies in a bottle who you can rub and massage the right way, and then she'll give you whatever it is that you need. That's not God. God is a holy God. He's not going to stand by forever and tolerate the wickedness of man. I am thankful that he did not stand by forever and tolerate my wickedness, but yet he rescued me 
from my wickedness through the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Here, the earth will be full of those who have rejected the only sacrifice for their sin. As Hebrews says, there's no sacrifice for sins left. I assure you of this. You reject Christ and remain in your unbelief. All you have to look forward to is what you're seeing poured out here in Revelation 8. God's holy indignation. His fiery indignation in the form of His wrath. What does this do? It's interesting. We, we started this with silence. Remember, for 30 minutes, nothing is said. Nothing is spoken. No one is shouting. No trumpets blowing. But an angel... In the midst of that silence, he's given incense, prayers, to mix with the prayers of the saints. He offers those up to God. God hears those prayers, sees those prayers, and says, execute my judgment upon those who have killed my children, who have blasphemed my name, who have rejected my only begotten Son, Bring the fire. Where will you be when he brings the fire? Will you be secure there with him as we've seen many have been secured because of Christ? Will you be that person who has rejected Christ over and over and over again? When the silence in heaven is interrupted, how is it interrupted? Look what he says there. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The angel abruptly, in the midst of the silence in heaven, executes the righteous anger and indignation of God as he hurls the fire of God straight to the earth, interrupting the silence with a violent expression of the full fury of the wrath of God. These peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, does this sound familiar to anyone? How about way back in chapter 4 when we read this? Verse 5, from the throne. Remember when we went into the throne room and we got that glimpse? It says, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, before the throne. John reiterates those same statements so that you understand. This is not just a single angel going rogue. This is God executing His perfect judgment upon this earth, followed by an earthquake. Another catastrophic event that comes upon the earth as if things have not been bad enough. Oh, you wait. Well, you wait for the seven trumpets and the seven bowls that are to come. For the great day of the Lord has begun. This is the next phase of God's judgment. He is about to shake the very foundations of all of His creation that was tainted by sin. He is going to shake the literal foundations of this earth that were thrown into chaos when Satan there in the garden, tempted man to sin, and man fell, and with man fell all of God's creation. God will 
avenge the blood of his children and he will avenge his holy name. So why do we look at these things? Why not just pass by these things? Why, why not just not talk about the judgment of God and just talk about the love of God, the mercy of God and his grace and all the other things that make us comfortable? Because we must, we must join with the angels and all of heaven in awe of Almighty God and His holy indignation. We must join with them in standing in awe of the fact that our God is, just as He said, Almighty. That He is a jealous God who will avenge His name and the blood of His children. You can take that to the bank. You say, and that that makes God something to be feared. Exactly. It's high time, men, that we get back to the fear of the Lord, where we fear His judgment. Now, granted, those of us who are in Christ, we have nothing to fear personally. But do you fear the judgment of God for those that you love? Do you fear the judgment of God for those that you work with, those who are in your family? Do you fear the judgment of God for the drunk in the street, for the addict on the street corner? Do you fear the judgment of God enough to tell them about the glorious gospel contained in the message of Jesus Christ? Proverbs, and all the wisdom that we can gain there, says this. Verse, chapter 9, verse 10, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. You want wisdom? You better see God for who He really is. He's not some weak, impotent God who's going to sit back and let His name be drugged through the mud forever and let His children be abused upon this earth. He is a God who will, in His indignation and in His wrath, He will, I guarantee you this, judge the wickedness of unbelieving and sinful man. He will judge the wickedness of this world. I say this to each of you. Do you fear Him? Do you fear Him? When you lay your pillow on, your, your head on your pillow tonight, do you have the confidence of knowing that you are not going to fall under the wrath and judgment of God? Because the wrath and judgment of God that belonged to you was bore by Christ on the cross. Have you trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior? Because I assure you of this. If you have not, you are a pretty good candidate to see this seventh seal opened upon you. If you remain in this world, you remain in your unbelief and your sin. Would you see this? Would it cause you to fear God? Well, that's a term we used to use in Christianity. We would talk about one who feared the Lord. Do do you fear Him? As a believer, do you fear his discipline in your life? Because those he loves, he disciplines and he chastens with a rod. It's the beginning of wisdom, as we saw in Proverbs. Do you fear the judgment that is going to come upon others? Do you fear it enough to make yourself vulnerable by opening your mouth and sharing with them that the only way to be free from the indignation and the wrath of God came on a cross 2,000 years ago, and then to share with them the truth of the gospel, to not be ashamed. Romans 1.16, Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
Why? Because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. You say you're not ashamed, but do you live as if you are not ashamed? Because I assure you of this. Every unbelieving soul, apart from Jesus Christ, is in danger of the seventh seal coming upon their lives, coming upon the lives of their families. The indignation, the judgment, and the wrath of God belongs to the wicked. If you're in Christ, thank Him for that. It is only by His mercy and His grace that He has allowed you to be there. If you're not in Christ tonight, I implore you, cry out to Him to save your wretched soul before it's everlasting too late. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. We thank You that it is true. Lord, we fear you tonight, a God of wrath and a God of indignation who will, as a good father, avenge not only your name, but you will avenge the blood of those who suffer and die for you. God, I pray that we would see the truth of your word tonight, that it would motivate us. Lord, that we would believe that there truly is judgment to come and we would live like we truly believe that. That we would not miss an opportunity to share the good news, the gospel, with every lost and dying soul. Lord, we know that it's not on us to make them believe, for only you can handle that. But it is on us to share, to open our mouths and to be obedient, to proclaim that the only hope for sinful man to avoid the judgment and wrath of God was found at a cross. And that cross was outside of Jerusalem where you, Lord Jesus, shed your blood to rescue wretched, wicked sinners like me. Thank you for that mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love that I don't deserve. I pray for each and every man who's here tonight. Or if there be one who doesn't know you as Savior, Pray tonight that they would find themselves in silence, on their knees, before your throne, repenting in their hearts, turning to you by faith. Lord, I pray that they would find you as their Savior and their Lord as you reveal yourself to them. God, I pray for those who know you, that we would live like we truly do, that we would bring you glory and honor and praise on this earth. Lord, we long for the day We get to see you face to face. We pray, even now, come Lord Jesus, come. We pray these things in your mighty name. Amen. We hope that you have grown through the teaching of God's word. If you would like to find out more information about Key Life Fellowship, visit our website, keylifefellowship.com, or you can email us at info at keylifefellowship.org. We would love for you to join us in person. Our men's Bible study meets every Thursday night at 7 p.m. here at the Key Life Fellowship Campus located in New Caney, Texas. Or feel free to join us at one of our Sunday worship services as well. As we conclude today's lesson, I will leave you with one reminder. Go out and be the light in a lost, dark world.